0: Let's get legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association here on 720 WGN. Mike Leonard, we always end up chatting right up until we go on the air, my friend, and uh, we proved him right this time as well. Good to yeah, talk we, with you. We almost
1: broke the rules, John, and started started our uh, kept our social conversation all all the way to the air, which <laughs> would have been well, well,
0: dangerous. Yeah, right. We talk about such dangerous things. LeonardTrialLawyers.com dot com is where you can go to talk to Mike, and whenever you are on, we get a ton of calls. So three one two nine eight one seventy two hundred. This is kind of, I think, a chance for the listeners and I think, Mike, you enjoy doing this, as like a look behind the scenes at how it works to either be an attorney, be a defendant, be a prosecutor. I mean, you know a lot about all these things. You primarily do a lot of federal court stuff, but you've done it all. Do you like answering the questions when people have like the quirky things like, how do you get over a case you lose, stuff like that? Oh, yeah,
1: it's very fun, and and it's thought-provoking. It's the kind of stuff you talk about with people... Outside the law all the time. So it's really fun to answer them. My only concern is when you say, i got a question, am I going to be able to answer it. Oh, yeah. If it's based upon experience, absolutely. I enjoy talking about it.
0: 312-911-7200. I already got some calls in, but I do want to do this because we've been putting this off. Uh, I I think that you and I both realize we are both true crime podcast listeners, right? Yes,
1: I'm an aficionado of the true crime podcast. It's a great genre, isn't it?
0: It is. It is. And I think the one that kind of jump-started it was serial back in two thousand and fourteen two thousand and fifteen, Sarah Koenig, and they did the whole thing with Anand Syed, yeah. and whether he uh, killed heyman uh, lee and this it was this case that was pretty open and closed to prosecutors at least, and the jury thought so too, and she dove in and kind of poked some holes at some of the things that were going on in the case well anyways it's it 's been on this meandering journey in Maryland, and last month we find out that uh, he 's being released in fact it's the prosecutor's office that pushed for this right
1: yeah and it's gone it's gone even farther than that yeah so i think that was probably i mean is it recognized as the first crime podcaster
0: uh, maybe i yeah. think the first one that really captivated it for a yeah. lot of people it was the first podcast that they listened yeah to.
1: and i was looking at the numbers that was 2014 yeah and we're now eight years past that so mm-hmm. there's no question that that podcast had a major impact upon him getting released i think But for the podcast, we're not talking about this today.
0: 100%. And even some people in his family ended up not loving the way the podcast went, but they still said, had it not been for that, we wouldn't have gotten where we were. So as as far as I understand enough people looked into it deep enough that they felt like they no longer had confidence in their case. The state didn't. So they went to move to try and vacate the trial, right? That's
1: that's yeah, got to be. So, so what the state did, Yeah, a couple of things have happened in recent in recent note, including this week. So, oh, you have new uh, updates for me. So So the prosecutor, you know, they moved to vacate the conviction, which would mean they could either retry him or not retry him. Okay. Okay. So the judge gave him thirty days to make that decision. They've made that decision. They're not going to retry him. So people then ask, well, does that mean he's exonerated? Yes and no. Unfortunately for him, you know, he's he's not going to be retried. He's innocent, but he has that he has that conviction. So now what he's going to do, he'll petition the court in Maryland to get a certi- cert- certification of innocence to say, look, not only. Did the did the case go away? But I'm actually I'm actually innocent. Which there's procedures to do that in different jurisdictions.
0: So wait, right now the conviction is still on his record, even though they asked to vacate the conviction. Well, well no,
1: the conviction is on his record, but he he's looking for a a, a ruling by a court to say I'm actually innocent. Okay, okay, which is different than saying hey, you know, we didn't pursue the case. Uh, he's actually looking for a certification of innocence, which would be which would be great for him. And you know, the other interesting. Event which is happening is is the family objected and filed something in court saying, you know, gee, you can't do this. There hey, was a, Lee's
0: family, the victim's yeah, family. They, yeah. they,
1: they said, well, there's a Marin law that requires notice to the victims in certain instances. Um, I don't think that law is going to have any impact on the prosecutor's decision. It doesn't, of course. But and and I think the court's going to take the position like, hey, I understand you're making the objection. You didn't get proper notice. However you can't impact the prosecutor's decision. So even though the prosecutor is supposed to give you notice as a formality, we can't make the prosecutor prosecute the case. They have that discretion to prosecute or not prosecute.
0: I want to unravel this just a little bit. Go back a month when they actually asked to vacate it.
1: I mean, that's very rare, right? Oh, totally rare. I mean, more so now that it happens than it ever did in the past Mm -hmm. because a lot of states have conviction integrity units where they'll take a look at cases. And I think because of the public idea that people are subject to wrongful convictions. That's just bred a lot of cases being filed to be reviewed and things of that nature. Uh, but that sad case, we, we can't forget one thing. What, what happened was that the prosecutors in that case said that they had doubts about the integrity of the verdict uh, because of what's called exculpatory evidence. Okay, right. And, and I think we were going to try to talk about one of our last times. We just didn't get around to it because I think you were, you, know, you were hogging the mic, John, quite, quite frankly. <laughs> But uh, but what happened yeah. was the prosecutors looked at the case and really, I think, spurred on by the podcast and the publicity that generated. Because if we step back one more step, John, after the podcast, there was a motion for a new trial. It was denied by the appellate court. Right. The trial court said, yeah, you can have a new trial. Maryland and Pell Court said, no, no, you don't get a new trial. So then we had, you know, four years of limbo, so to speak, but you had a new prosecutor in the office, took a fresh look at the case and really decided that exculpatory evidence had not been turned over to the defendant and his counsel way back in 2000. And what we mean by that is, you know, material that would be could change the outcome of the case, and that was favorable to the accused right, and the significance of the evidence in this case was strong he had It turned out the the government had failed to turn over uh, witness statements that indicated that there were two individuals who not only had the opportunity to do it, but had the motive, there was evidence linking them potentially to the crime, and that was never turned over to the defense. So okay. that alone you would have thought would have gotten him a new trial in the first instance. But you have to give kudos in this instance to the prosecutor because they came forward and said, look, we've taken a look at this. We have this exculpatory evidence. They have a duty to disclose that. And they had problems with the conviction themselves.
0: Okay, so as a defense attorney, are you always confident that the... Exculpatory evidence is getting to you, or does every defense attorney always wonder is something being withheld
1: from me? We always wonder, (laughs) right? But, But the issue comes up all the time, John. And there's two sort of, as you know, there's the federal court system and the state court system. Right. The federal court system has really come around and puts a heavy burden on the prosecution to produce anything that's exculpatory. However despite the admonition at the beginning of the case, they have to turn over exculpatory evidence. Despite the case law and Supreme Court decisions and how important it is, it still happens. You know, We still are arguing, oftentimes, even the case we had last month in federal court in Missouri, we're arguing that they didn't properly and timely turn over exculpatory evidence. So the issue comes up all the time. Sometimes it's a question of timing. Sometimes it's a question that it wasn't disclosed at all. But on the state court level, it's much more, I would say, loosey-goosey, and you don't have as much confidence that you're going to always get exculpatory materials. We're involved in a case right now um, where we're petitioning the court for a new trial because evidence was, in our view, withheld at the time of the original trial. And so we're seeking to get uh, a new trial for our, for our client. But these issues are, are you know, somewhat common, not in every case, but they come up a lot.
0: Is is there ever like a dispute over what is the does this fall under the uh, under the realm of exculpatory right because
1: some people might look at some evidence as exculpatory some might not right yeah well that's the problem because the prosecution will take the position with the court you, you may file a motion uh, because something comes to your attention that was either belatedly disclosed or never disclosed and there's an argument about whether it's favorable to the accused or not right uh, which is kind of funny but you know that's the problem when you don't have a system of hey it's an open file, which you know. In a in a pure world, it would be an open file, meaning whatever the prosecution has,
0: every note, you get every it, document, yeah. you get
1: it, you get it immediately. You don't have to wait till ten days before trial or whatever. So that's not
0: what it is. Every, I mean, no, like,
1: it's not. So you have prosecutors making decisions on what is exculpatory, what needs to be turned over. Right? It's not a concept of a purely open file where you get everything when they get it. And also, you know, when you're in federal court, there's things called the Jenks Act, which Governs the fact that you may not get, you know, witness statements, grand jury statements until right before the trial, which makes it very difficult to defend your client. You sometimes feel like you're doing it on the fly. And depending upon the jurisdiction you're in, versus Chicago, for instance, versus federal court in St. Louis, in federal court in St. Louis, we're getting stuff 10 days before the trial that we had never seen before from literally dozens of witnesses. Seems close. That would not happen here in Chicago, but. The jurisdiction has their own set of local rules and their own sort of precedent. And so you have to be mindful of that.
0: I can hear state prosecutors listening right now screaming into the void. I want to speak up for them and stand up for them a little bit, Mike. Come on, they're they're doing what they're doing, right? They
1: should should be calling it. No one's accusing them of anything. I'm just saying the rules and standards are different on the federal court level versus the state court level. It's mm -hmm. just a different set of rules, different set of case law that governs when things have to be turned over. And like I said, in federal court, There's a different standard, different set of rules depending upon what jurisdiction you're in. So obviously the obligation of the prosecutor is to turn over everything that is exculpatory, but there's often disputes about whether something is exculpatory, whether it's been timely disclosed and, and issues along those lines. I'm, but.
0: I imagine there's I mean, I love to think that every single actor in in the system is it removes themselves and their biases from situations. But I, I know that we know that's impossible and we try to adjust and do whatever we can. But I could see a prosecutor with a piece of evidence that. It certainly does not prove that the, the defendant didn't do it. They know they did, but boy, they know that that defense attorney could use that in some way to cloud things up a little bit. And I, I'm not a prosecutor, so please, if there's anyone out there that says this never happens, please don't say that. Uh, maybe I'm wrong, but I could at least see someone being like, oh, come on this guy did it this is just this little thing that that could be cloud that could cloud the judgment of people yeah i'm not going to hand that over
1: well look everybody in the system is human right everyone's making judgments no one's accusing prosecutors at whole of not turning over exculpatory evidence but we know that it does happen mm-hmm. there are cases where it happens the adnan said is one example uh, i've had numerous examples in my career and sometimes it's a question of judgment about whether it's exculpatory or not or the timeliness of it but you're right. I mean, that does happen. I hope the, the prosecutors lit up your phone lines right now, Please John. Do. They don't seem to be, no. but uh, <laughs> it's just us talking about the issue. Yeah.
0: I, I, I want to dive in because I actually was listening, uh, deeper into, uh, how the relationship between prosecutors and the defense attorneys work. Uh, but we're up against the news. And I also want to get to Kurt's call in just a little bit. So let's take a break right now. By the way, if you want to reach Mike Leonard, he's a great guy to chat with and also defend you, of course. Lawyers is where to com, And, uh, you can call him as well. The phone number, Mike, I'm trying to find it on the website. There it is.
1: 312-815-6572. Right. That's good, John. Or the direct number three one two three eight zero six five five nine. Okay, I write. sound like I feel like I'm talking like Better Call Saul. You know?
0: let <laughs> take a break for the news on WGN. <laughs> 720 WGN. That's right, Dave. Annett. And uh, this is Let's Get Legal. It's powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. Mike Leonard and I going back and forth on fascinating cases in Illinois history. At least to us. Yeah, we need to make a podcast. How about let's, that?
1: Let's do it, John. Well, I know yeah, you've got both a, lot of us have a lot of
0: free time. you got a lot
1: of free time. You <laughs> maybe give up your Blackhawks gig. Yeah, and, oh, you
0: know. no, 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 no. <laughs> Don't ever say that. Not on this station. Uh, com is where you go. Uh, we're going to get to Kurt in a moment. But you and I were talking... What is the relationship like? I always wonder: is are do defense attorneys and prosecutors get along? Cordial, friendly? Out
1: to the bars, clinking beers afterwards? Sometimes, maybe so. No. Well, it's not like TV, but I would I would say you know you you sometimes get along extremely well with your opposing prosecutor, and sometimes you don't. And you know, part of it's being a human, part of it's sometimes contentiousness associated with a case. Uh, part of its maturity. I feel like when I was a younger lawyer, I viewed them as the enemy and <laughs> as as the person to battle against, and they're not really, you know. But sometimes you get into issues with them, but sometimes you get along fantastically well. You, mm-hmm. there's, there's nothing between you that's uncordial. It's all extremely professional, but that does, that's not always the case. Let's right. be honest. And, and other people might sit here and say. They 100% always get along great with prosecutors. That's not been my experience, but you know I I try to, and uh, I feel like as a as a maturing lawyer, I I do much better at that. And because I realize they're they're really not the opponent, but sometimes you get in disputes with them about things that you think they could do better or could do earlier that you disagree with. But most of the time, there's really no reason to expend that energy uh, fighting with the other side in that manner. It just doesn't really help you too much. But in terms of uh, having drinks after the trial, that that doesn't typically happen. You can have great relationship with prosecutors outside the courtroom, and you know them, and you see them around and all that sort of stuff, but not not necessarily like TV. All right. Okay. That's good to know. I think that's like most
0: professions in the world. When it goes on TV... It's not exactly what it is. 312-981-7200. All right, Kurt, you've been holding for a while. I apologize. Uh, go ahead and, uh, Mike, why don't you put on your... Do you have any headphones over I there? Do. I do, John. You know, why don't you do that? And then you should have a little dial with the headphone thing if you can't hear me.
1: Uh, all right, Kurt, go ahead. Yeah, Mike, I'd like to get your expertise out on an employee contract if I could.
0: Okay, an employee contract. You know, our next guest at 2 o'clock is going to handle a lot of employment law, but maybe you could shoot the question out and see if Mike or Laurel are able to answer it. Go ahead, Kurt.
1: It, yeah, so I'm finding that in my employee contract, the company's wanting any dispute issues to be handled by arbitration rather than a jury trial. And it's something that I just wonder, why would a company want arbitration versus a jury trial? All right, Mike, your thoughts yeah, on it. That's a good question. Of course, arbitration does not apply at all to criminal proceedings that cannot be arbitrated. But what happens in, in employment contracts, and I think the next guest is going to get more deep into this, so I'll just keep it quick, Employers can have provisions that say you have to arbitrate all disputes, meaning forced arbitration correct so so but the court say it 's not forced, which is interesting, but mm. it will say that you know if you have a dispute arise either under an employee contract or even uh, more, more commonly things like discrimination, claims of that nature, any employment claim that you have related to your termination or the terms of conditions of your employment. You don't get a jury trial. You don't get a trial at all. You don't get to go to court. You have to arbitrate it. Right. And why the employer likes that is they would view that as a, an opportunity to, uh, number one, streamline the process, pay less money in the process. But I think most importantly, they view it as the the evils of the jury trial to the defendants, the employers, are that you're going to get, if you win, a large, much larger verdict than you typically might get from an arbitrator.
0: Sometimes those arbitrators are hired... Or chosen by the the company. In fact,
1: well, here's the interesting thing, John. So, one of the, the biggest organizations called AAA Arbitration. For the last two years, I've been on their panel. So sometimes I am the judge arbitrator oh, on really? cases. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's interesting. interesting. Yeah. Okay. But the but the parties you you select the person who's the arbitrator. Right. Laurel Bellows Bellows will be joining us. She's an employment law
0: expert. Uh, and has done a ton, including she's passionate and has and, and chatted a bunch about the Ending Force Arbitration of Sexual Assault and Harassment Act, which finally passed this year by and about a big bipartisan uh, level. And in fact, it went ahead and voided previous agreements as well. So we'll dive deeper into I that.
1: won't touch that. I think Kurt should hang yeah, on. Yeah, Kurt, hang on the line. Yeah. Because, but from uh, my standpoint, who likes to try cases, even though I am an arbitrator on the panel, I like. I would like the chance for every case to get to a jury trial if it could. Yeah, amen to that.
0: Okay, uh, let's talk about uh, what happened uh, at the end of last week. You and I have been talking back and forth, kind of updating each time we chat about what's happening with President Trump's case, Mar-a-Lago, And it's getting a little convoluted with where we are in this because the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals basically said that uh, the FBI could get classified documents even while the special master is going through this. I believe it went then it went up to the Supreme Court challenged by President, former President Trump, and they just said, we're not taking this case,
1: right? Yeah. So I would say even though. It seems from the press, a lot has happened. I'd say in the last couple of weeks, not a lot has happened. But the big event that people are talking about is that Trump's team took the 11th Circuit opinion up to the United States Supreme Court on an emergency basis, seeking a ruling that with regard to 103 documents taken from Mar-a-Lago that are clearly classified, there's no dispute, they're, they're labeled as such, whether the DOJ could continue its investigation, use those documents that are clearly classified or whether they had to stop action and give those to the special master and not rely upon those as part of their investigation. The U S Supreme court, which was no surprise to anybody just summarily denied that request to hear the case in a, you know, basically one sentence order that they're not going to take it up, which doesn't surprise anybody because typically, you know, things like disputes over document production and privilege, you're going to let the district court, the special master do their job develop a full record. There may be issues to appeal again to the 11th Circuit and to the U.S. Supreme Court after that, but they're not going to jump in in the middle right now. It's much too early. Right.
0: No, it, and I would see that, but someone could make the case that this is this is the former president we're talking about here.
1: Sure. And that's the argument they're making. They were trying to make the argument that executive privilege applies. This is a special actor. It's a unique actor position in our government. Therefore, the Supreme Court should take the case. The Supreme Court didn't take the bait. Um, John, the other thing that happened this week uh, on the Trump front has nothing to do with Mar-a-Lago, but the January 6th committee issued a subpoena to him to come in and testify. Can you imagine what? TV drama that would be. I don't think it's going to happen. No, it's not going to happen. But can you imagine? He his response was they should have done it earlier. Why did they wait so long? But he he has no intention of appearing. The big question is, is anything going to happen because of his refusal to comply with the right. subpoena? Probably no.
0: But see, Bannon, they they they, they sure. found him guilty yeah. of this, so, right?
1: So what the, what the um what what Congress has done or their their Senate committee has done they they've actually referred a couple of witnesses who refused to testify and provide evidence, they referred them for prosecution. So that the DOJ actually brought two contempt cases against you know lower-level witnesses. No one believes the DOJ is going to bring a criminal case against Trump for not complying with the subpoena. The other option would be far less than a prosecution. Either the committee itself or Trump's team could go to the court you know, either party seeking an order to essentially quash this subpoena or enforce this subpoena. So I don't even know if that's going to happen. Right. And people are also banking on the fact that the Senate, the majority may change hands. The committee's work may be done. So therefore, the dispute would be mute. No court would even hear it anyways. Right. Right. Have you changed at all your prognostication
0: about where this ultimately ends up happening? You said pretty early on, right after the, the raid at Mar-a-Lago, that you still felt that there was very little chance the former president would be charged with anything. Is there anything in the last couple of months that has changed your mind on that?
1: No, John, I'm still sticking to that video soundbite you have of me about two months ago saying Trump will not be prosecuted for anything arising out of the Mar-a-Lago documents. I still stick with that prediction. However... I did predict the Bears were going to win on Thursday night, so I I don't know if I'm a good
0: prognosticator. Right. And also, before people text on in one way or the other, he's just making a prediction, people. That's not his opinion one way or the other. Let's take a break. Then we got more coming up on Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association on WGN. 720 WGN. Your Oh, I almost said your money matters. No, this is Let's Get Legal. Well, that's my other show, Mike, Your Money Matters on WGM, Monday through Thursday. You should come on to that program, too. I'd love to, John. You could you, you got could some invent
1: af- some legal issue that relates to how your money matters, and I would address it.
0: There are actually intersectionality between those two subjects quite often.
1: Well, especially when you get charged by a crime based upon your use of the money. 100%.
0: And there's bankruptcy issues, IRS issues. There's a lot of uh, crossovers. Um, but not on today's show. We're talking with Mike Leonard. And uh, we got a question from Jeff. I like this question, Jeff. Why don't you give it to us?
2: Um, Hi, Mike. Um, First of all, let me preface it real quick by saying, although our our criminal justice system in this country is not perfect, it's still probably the best in the world. um, Why is it, Mike, that the the element of truth has very little to do with anything in our criminal justice system?
1: And, Jeff, by that, do you mean that evidence can be limited because the court finds it's not relevant and you're you're suggesting that any fact should be admitted is that is that what you're getting at
2: no i'm asking why the element of truth the actual truth as to what might have happened the truth is really irrelevant so i guess that is kind of always seems like it always seems like they the attorneys skirt around the truth it's almost like they don't want the truth coming out it's like Let's skirt around us and go someplace else.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting observation. Um, I think, you know, I think you get to the the foundation first in a criminal case that it's proof beyond a reasonable doubt, right? And the government's burden to prove that versus someone proving that something actually happened. It's just you have to meet that, that standard. Is that kind of what you're getting at?
2: Yeah, so you actually said something very interesting. So you're saying that the way our system is, um proof beyond a reasonable doubt does not necessarily equate to something that actually may or may not have happened
1: i don't think so agreed i mean yeah. and, and the weird an interesting thing and i think the fascinating thing with trying a case is uh unless someone tells you um you know you you don't really know the truth and, and neither side does i mean either side thinks they know the truth for instance the prosecutors firmly believe this happened this is how it happened this is what this guy did the defense lawyer says no I don't agree with that, I don't think it's it happened like you said it did. I don't think my guy did it or you certainly haven't shown that it happened the way you said it did or the that you proved it so yeah, it's kind of a okay. a great question for the ages. I mean, yeah. Jeff, do you compare to any other systems I mean, I agree with you. I think we still have the best system but are you do you do you compare the no, truth seeking no, function no, in any other I don't
2: yeah. have any I don't have any comparison at all. It just seemed like um, I, I the truth should be the ultimate the ultimate goal, and it doesn't seem to be.
1: Well, right. one, one thing that you, know, you learn, even from the law school days up, is that the process of cross-examination is the greatest truth-seeker you could come up with. So if you're really trying to find out the truth of what happened, subject someone to cross-examination, everybody, and you'll get an idea to get you close to the truth, is the idea. But certainly our system is okay. not premised upon that when the trial is done, Everybody knows the truth, and I, I'm not sure it's that you hard. could. I'm not sure that's even possible.
0: I, and I guess that the impossibility of knowing the truth is why we have beyond a reasonable doubt, because you've got to put the burden on something, and if yep. you know, you've got to put it on the prosecutors. I mean, the, the, if you're going to put the burden somewhere, you don't want the person having to prove they didn't do something. No, right? Absolutely not. Hey Jeff, I gotta get to other questions, right. but I appreciate the call. Thank okay? you very much. Th- hey Jeff, thanks a lot. Man, we're getting philosophical today on the program. I love
1: it. It's really taxing my brain, John, on a Saturday afternoon. I love that. Uh <clears throat> I love when we can tax
0: your brain. Six three O wants to know what well, we were just talking about during the break. Are there too many plea deals out there? It does move the system along quicker, but if the expectation is plea, that can get murky.
1: I would say so. I would say the way the system's set up, that there's certainly a pressure to plea. There's certainly oftentimes uh, an advantage to plea or a perceived advantage because you're, your client is weighing a risk-benefit analysis. Like, hey, I think that I could beat this case. I could, I could, my position may be they're not going to be able to prove, prove me guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. However, no one can give me that guarantee. And therefore, I'm weighing uh, years that someone's offered me Versus the chance that I'm going to win a trial. So it's difficult. And then also, John, you know, you touched upon this deeply, I think, in your program on the Safety Act. The fact that people historically have been detained for such long periods of time, often in horrible conditions, makes them more likely to plea. And there's studies about that. There's studies about people getting longer sentences when they're detained longer before trial. But there's all sorts of things that go, down, go into breaking of, of someone's will. Or their ability to fight their case because they're incarcerated for such a long period of time before the case even goes to trial. And then they're also making a calculation that, hey, I've been in here this many days or this many months or this many years and they're offering me this plea deal and I subtract that time out and therefore I may think that I don't have that much more time to serve or I have a palpable amount Uh, but think about that. You're, you're, you're putting into your calculus the fact you've already served some time for something you might not have done or the government can't prove beyond a reasonable doubt that you did. And that's an important part of your calculus. So yeah, I think there aren't too many plea deals
0: uh two on nine it's lisa she says hi john been reading lots of john grisham so i'm loving your guest (laughs) (laughs) yeah boy we could go uh, book for book i'm sure there i I did want to get before we let you go an update
1: on the madigan case sure just there's a quick update that happened on on october 14th the u.s attorney's office announced the grand jury had returned a superseding indictment which john really just means an amendment just means an amendment Meanings mean additional charges were approved for prosecution against Mr. Madigan, and the the additional charge relates to an alleged scheme by which uh, Mr. Madigan directed AT and T, the company, to provide benefits in the form of money to someone who was allegedly associated with Madigan. That's the legal theory, and so it's very similar to the ComEd theory and the ComEd charges in that case, where they're alleging that Madigan had ComEd direct payments to people associated with him for his benefit to to curry political favor. So they're arguing here in the AT&T charges that AT&T was trying to curry favor with the Illinois legislature by giving benefits to Madigan, you know, in a, sort of an indirect fashion. So that's that's the newest news on that. But like that case is probably not likely to go to trial till Probably 2024, I would think at this place. Oh wow! Yeah. Okay, all right. I,
0: I need a whiteboard and a dry erase marker when we talk about the Madigan case. Sometimes too, and the alleged offenses there. So it's
1: it's extremely complicated, John.
0: Yeah, for sure. Mike Leonard, it's always great to
1: chat with you, my friend. Enjoyed it. Enjoyed the time. We didn't get, even get a chance to get into shark bites, but I guess we'll save that. <laughs> we'll save that for next time. For a new listener, that Mike. Uh, loves eating at local
0: watering place, watering holes, or places, or bars, or whatever it is. Dive, you, no, dive, 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 dive. That's food, dive
1: food. Dive. Not, dive. Dive, not dive bars, <laughs> dive, dive food. Yeah,
0: like you don't go in those two, Mike. Uh, yeah, I've been caught
2: in there once or twice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> take a quick <laughs> break, and uh, then we'll have the next hour of Let's Get Legal after this on WGN.